is preaching this sermon um, in, a, in a way to announce his advent. I mean, it's the first public sermon that we have record of in the New Testament. And so we're going to remind you and ask you to turn again to Matthew chapter 5. And while you're doing that, if you can stand, uh, we'll agree in prayer <clears throat> as we read these verses. And then we'll let you be seated. Last week, we began by the third verse where Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And <clears throat> he's speaking to us on these blessings. And they all follow um, an attitude of the heart. The blessings all follow an attitude of the heart. And so we want to find ourselves in this sermon and ask the Lord to examine our heart to see whether we have the attitude that will allow us to be found in the kingdom of heaven. That ultimately is what he's preaching about. And the advent of Christ, <clears throat> we sang a song this morning about it, the advent of Christ is the, um, is the beginning of <clears throat> the Messiah's reign on earth. And in a way, the coming of the kingdom of heaven that he brings with him. Um, <clears throat> and so it's appropriate that if we read the Sermon on the Mount, we connect it to the advent of Christ. And it, it also reminds us, if we'll pay attention to the different verses in this chapter, it's a progression of faith. If you read the third verse and on down in here uh, toward the end of the sermon, you'll see that each of them connects to the other. And if we find ourselves in one verse, we can, we, can, we can move on into the next verse and find ourselves there. And each of these create a progression that will ultimately lead to something that will probably be surprising on Christmas Day, but <clears throat> is all about the advent that Christ has for us. Seeing the multitudes, he went up to the mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, <clears throat> Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 4 is the subject of our thought this morning. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, I told you this is a bit unusual for an Advent message to read about poverty and mourning. But... <clears throat> When we find what they lead to, then they tell us that they lead to the advent, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> of the Savior. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, we just look to you in prayer, asking that you would continue to bless our service. We're, <clears throat> we're in the service this morning. We're thinking about Christ. We're thinking about the change of our heart, uh, the magnificent work that you do in the lives of humans, how it's your desire that we be connected. There's ways to find ourselves connected. It also reminds us of things that we, we wish to be disconnected from. <clears throat> so we pray that you bless the remainder of our service this morning. Have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. Amen. Um, <clears throat> I think we mentioned, and 
tried to get a hold of everybody that we could because of some illness in our performers, we'll postpone our Christmas uh, serve our program, our Christmas program from this afternoon to next Sunday. So there'll be no program tonight at six. Lord willing, it'll be next Sunday at six. If you've invited anybody, make sure that they're aware that there won't be somebody here at six o'clock tonight. Okay. All right. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. A mourner is somebody that has lost someone. Someone died, someone's missing. I don't think Jesus is talking about losing something here necessarily. Now I understand we can mourn the loss of things as well, but I really think he's speaking about the loss of a relationship, of, of a kind of personal relationship, that kind of loss and the mourning that follows that. And another way to describe it is lament. So blessed are they that lament. Lament means to suffer loss, to mourn. The person that is poor in spirit that we read about last week in the third verse is the person who mourns. It's difficult to mourn if we are lifted up in our own righteousness, or if we're self-satisfied, or if we have no need, right? We don't generally think of a mourner as somebody that has no need. But the poor in spirit that we studied about last week, the one that recognizes their poverty without Christ, will be a person that also will be found in mourning at a time. Now thank the Lord that uh, he says there's a resolution both to the poverty of spirit and to the mourning, and that is there's a comforting that follows when we have a genuine mourning. And we're going to be speaking about the loss that really matters this morning, because we can mourn things that we shouldn't, and they'll keep us from mourning the things that we should. So there is a loss that really matters and losses that don't. We also know that in the cycle of change or a cycle of loss or grief or bereavement, there comes a time when we need to say goodbye. And mourning is part of that cycle of loss, that cycle of bereavement. So we're gonna talk about the need to say goodbye. Now, I wanna stop right here and we'll repeat it again. The need to say goodbye is not the same as the need, as, as some, somehow some, some need to forget. So we're not saying that the need to say goodbye has anything to do with remembrance or forgetting. Those are different things. But there is a need to say goodbye when one is in mourning. Mourning is the beginning of something, but it is not meant to be the end of something. All right. And then finally, those things, mourning the loss of things that matter, being able to say goodbye, those things get us to the comfort 
that we seek in life because he says, blessed are they that mourn because somehow they're going to get comfort. So we're trying to figure out how does this happen? What is the mourning that's going on here? What is being mourned? And what's this about the comfort that we seek? Amen. So let's, let's look into that. Let's go to Daniel chapter 10. And there are many examples of mourning in the Bible. But this one gets us to um, the mourning that, um, that we need to get to, the mourning that matters. In the first verse, Daniel had a, a vision. And he was found in Babylon with the people of Israel. They were in exile. Um, Daniel is a prophet that God has chosen to deliver a message to his people. And I think Daniel's still supposed to give us that message as well. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he understood, um, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. And I don't know that this was the only time in Daniel's life that he was found mourning. I think Daniel was found mourning often. But in this particular case, he had been mourning for three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And so these were the emblems of his mourning. He fasted. He allowed himself no comforts. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hittichel, I lifted up mine eyes and looked, behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz. Now, He's going to go on to describe this man. But what follows his mourning is a connection with God, is a conversation with God. What follows his mourning is precisely what God wanted to get to him. But God did not deliver to Daniel what Daniel needed to hear until Daniel's spirit was found in the right place. His attitude was found in the right place. His body was like the barrel, his face the appearance of lightning, his eyes lamps of fire, arms and feet like in color to polish brass, the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw not the vision. God gave this vision to the prophet that had been found mourning for a loss. Keep in mind, mourning is connected to a loss. So it's important to ask yourself at this point, what is the loss that Daniel is mourning? Is he mourning his own sort of happiness? Is he, is he mourning his own riches? Is he mourning somehow his own contentment? Is he mourning the wealth of his people, the power of his people, the influence of his people? Right? It's important to ask what he's mourning. 
a great quaking fell upon them, so they fled to them and to hide themselves. Why? Because they, they weren't in a position to receive the vision that God gave Daniel. Because their attitude was not prepared for the vision that God gave Daniel. He wasn't the one that God had chosen to receive the vision. Therefore, I was left alone. And I saw this great vision. There remained no strength in me. For my comeliness was turned into me, uh, in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. He'd been fasting and praying for three weeks, so he was physically weak. But I don't think that's the only reason that he found himself without strength. Remember in the third verse of, of Matthew, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are those that are in poverty. Now what follows the scriptures that we're reading in Matthew, he'll talk about being thirsty and hungry, right? So you can see, he's, Daniel has placed himself at need for God. That's a question this morning. Have we placed ourselves at need of God? These are profound questions. It takes time to think about them. Or have we developed a kind of self-sufficiency through our routine that we go through during the week? And we can have a routine of Bible reading and Bible study and prayer. We can have routines about anything. But if it leaves us self-sufficient with less need of God, we're losing a kind of mourning attitude or a kind of... We're taking on a kind of self-sufficiency. And I believe there was a reason why he was left alone and he saw this great vision. And I believe there's a reason why there was no strength in him. God doesn't want in us a kind of strength that, that we have, right? That somehow, depending on the trial or the severity of my circumstances, my strength will determine my decision. This is important. We all gonna have tomorrow and maybe the next day and maybe the next day or someday after that, we're gonna have an important decision. It's gonna be very important. Something's gonna come up. And the first thing that we'll do is say to self, self, how shall I solve this problem? That's the first thing we say. Most of us, that's the first thing we say. But somewhere in that calculation, God wants us to go to him and say, self, I have no strength. Amen. Self, I have no strength. Because then we'll get the decision right. Okay, come on. I believe there's a reason why he found himself without strength. For my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then I was in deep sleep on my face, my face toward the ground. Behold, a hand touched me, which set me on my knees and upon the palms of my hands. I think of him having just being laid out flat on the ground with no strength. And then he felt a hand touch him. And it allowed him to get up this much. 
onto his knees and the palms of his hands, kind of in a crouching position. He wasn't able to stand in the presence of this vision, but he could get that far so that he was able to hear what God had to tell him. God help us to be in a position that we are able to hear what God has to tell us. That we also have this attitude of completely without strength. And we've illustrated this before. If you're laid out flat on the ground, right? You have no power in the world. Try it when you go home. To, try this at home. Lay yourself flat on the ground and best with your face down. I think that's prone, but I get prone and prostrate mixed up. Anyways, with your face down and your arms out like this, lay yourself down flat on the ground and see how much power you have. To, and, 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 and don't push yourself up by your own strength and see how much power you have to do anything at all. That's how God wants us to be coming to him. Now, God touched him and gave him this much strength to hear the message that he got up on his knees and on his hands. We need to be careful when we're making important decisions. This is very important. In this congregation, I've had folks come to me after the decision was made, and it was a very important decision, and basically let me know the decision that had been made. Now, I'm not anybody's conscience, but we do learn some things about what Paul tells us about those in church that can help us. We're part of a body. We all have a role. We all have a place. And sometimes the decision has been made. We are informed, and we have no ability to help anybody with that decision at that point because the decision has already been made. That decision was not made necessarily with palms on the ground, on the knees, but rather standing. You see? God help us all. God help us all to have an attitude of, um, of mourning, right? An attitude of poverty. And this is not to say that we're intended to be hermits living in a cave and give away all our worldly goods. It's the attitude of the heart. And so we see from this the attitude that Daniel had. And then he said to me in verse 12, fear not, Daniel. Why? Because I have found you worthy to deliver this message to. Fear not, Daniel, for, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. I'm come here because of your petition. <clears throat> so it's an example of the morning that Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 5. When you go home tonight and if you're settling, you're having devotions, think about Daniel 10 and look at the attitude of the prophet and then go back to the Sermon on the Mount and consider what Jesus is saying and that context, that kind of attitude. So there are some things that matter. There are some losses that matter and some losses that don't. Later in the Psalms, I'll refer you to Psalm 137. The psalmist <clears throat> wept by the rivers of Babylon. 
when they remembered Zion. Why? Because they couldn't sing the songs of Zion in a strange land. The strange land today is the land of the vanity of the world. That's the strange land. And all the attitudes of the world, the attitudes that separate people from God, that is a type of Babylon today. It's an exile. We need to be very clear about this. There is a, a presence in the kingdom of God that requires certain attitudes of the heart. And then there is an exile from that kingdom. And it has other attitudes. And we need to check ourselves to see which attitudes are working on me. Some will keep me in the kingdom and some will put me out. Amen. They hung their harps because they couldn't sing their song in a strange land. Aren't you grateful that one day God gave you a new song? That's in the Revelation. That they sing a song which only the redeemed shall know. When God redeems us from the foolishness of this life, from the exile of this life. God redeems us from that. He gives us a new song in our heart. Ask yourself this morning, do I really have a new song? Do I know the newness of me? Do I have a new song? Or, or we, we illustrated it this way. There's a difference between a revolution of spirit and an evolution of spirit. An evolution of spirit is, is sort of, we, 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 we go through life one step after another. And one day we find ourselves in sort of a, a spiritual or religious place and we say, God has changed me. But in fact, there's been no crisis of change. It was just an evolution that you know, we learned some things, we studied some things, we found some people that we liked, we went to a church that we liked, whatever happened. And one day we found ourselves there and we said, we said, I, 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 am, I, I am a new creature. But where, where did the new birth happen? Back in here. Where, where did the new birth happen? I mean, if we read the third chapter of John, Jesus is telling the Pharisee, you're speaking about things you don't understand. Why? Because you haven't had an experience of a new birth. Okay. The psalmist said, there's some songs that we can't sing in a strange land. I love, and I'll forget where it is in Isaiah, <clears throat> the watchmen are on the wall of Zion. And they... There's a scripture that says, and they shall see eye to eye. Now, one way to interpret that is for the safety of the city, the watchmen see the other tower on the wall, and a cry goes out, or a light is illuminated, or whatever, and the watchmen tell each other, all around the city, we're safe. That's one way to interpret it. But I like another interpretation that I read from a, a commentator once, that as the exiles came back from Babylon to Zion, Zion is on a hill in the mountains of Judea. It's not down in a valley. It's on a hill because <clears throat> a long time before 
King David ever got there, there was a people that lived on Mount Zion and they used it for security and protection because it was a high point, the highest point in that area. And you could see for some distance from Mount Zion to protect yourself. And as people came back from Babylon and they came up the ridge, up the mountain to Mount Zion, they came up from Babylon. And those watchmen are on the walls that Nehemiah would build. And their eye looked out and they saw these pilgrims coming, come, returning to Zion. There came a place at a time when that watchman saw the eye of that one that had been the, in the exile of sin. And that eye met that eye. And they saw eye to eye. And that encounter created joy in the camp because another one was coming back from the exile of Babylon. They could now sing a new song back in the land of their birth, as it were. And it's the same thing today. I hope we never lose the thankfulness of the moment that God returned us from the exile of Babylon. Amen? Into the city of our birth. This is where we're meant to be. And this city then gives us that new song that we can sing, that whole experience. There are losses that matter and losses that don't. And I'm thinking back in chapter 5 of Matthew in the fourth verse here, losses that matter and losses that don't. And so when you read, blessed are they that mourn, you have to ask yourself, what, what is he saying it's a blessing to mourn for? What creates the blessing in the morning? Because simply mourning, there's no necessarily a blessing in mourning itself, especially if one is mourning for the wrong things. It reminded me of things that we mourn for in life and whether they're the right things or the wrong things and whether or not it's this morning or another morning. I can remember in elementary school, and maybe you can relate, uh, when, you, when you're out on the playground, as soon as the bell rings, um, depending on the season, we were playing different games. And um, those that like to play games, why they all, <clears throat> they all ran to the field where we played the game, and you started choosing sides. Sometimes they would appoint two captains, and then the captain would pick somebody, right, that's, a, that's out there in your class. And you always wanted to get chosen on the good team especially, and you didn't want to be the last person to get picked because then everybody knew you were no good. <laughs> and so you got picked, and um, if you were the last person, you wanted to prove to them that you could play or that you were good enough, and so you tried really hard so you weren't the last person to get chosen the next time. And it didn't make you feel very good, right? It, it was like a loss, like, I don't belong. I, I'm not part of this. You know, they don't, they don't appreciate me. Or kids at school, you know, they have groups. And you always wanted to be part of the group that you wanted to be part of. You know, 
groups of kids at school. And whether it was two or three girls or whatever, and they had their little group, and you wanted to be part of that group, and then sooner or later, one of the girls, um, they decided that they didn't want you part of that group. And so they turned your, their back on you, and they kind of left you behind, and it made you feel bad. It was like a loss. Amen. I can remember coming home. My grandmother was staying with us at the time, and... Um, Kids had been making fun of me for some reason or another at school. And I came home and I was crying, you know, to my grandmother. Kids were making fun of me. And she tried to comfort me. She tried to comfort me. And I was mourning a loss, a loss of what kids just want, you know, just to be connected with somebody, right? Mourning a loss. Well, those things pass. Those things will pass. The youthful things that we mourn, you know, next week or next year we're part of another group, it's not so bad, it's gonna get better, you know? This too shall pass, so forth. But as you get older, some things that you lose, they really matter. It's hard to replace, hard to find another one. We mourn the loss of a pet animal, right? If you're really close to that animal and that Animal dies, is just like a part of you is missing. But even that, we, we'll probably get over that. It's not that we will forget, but we'll probably get over it. Other things like that, we mourn those losses. But the loss of a relationship with a person leaves a, a huge hole. More so than these other things. And we mourn that loss. But one day, in the life of a sinner, just about everybody gets to the place where they're mourning the loss of a relationship and they don't even know it. And really the loss of the relationship that they're mourning is the loss of a connection with God. Because God creates meaning in life, even for a young person. How many times can you at school go through rejection and alienation and isolation and the loss of friends and all that? How many times can you go through that and at some point not start to feel like, what is this all about? You know, gotta be more than this. And then when we get older, we get to be an adult, and the same thing happens. And relationships in life, they might disappoint us and so forth, or we lose them, right? We lose them. And it's not even bad. It's sometimes people move away, we lose people, that kind of thing. And, and, and those are okay, and, and they create a loss. And so we understand something about mourning. But Jesus is speaking about a particular kind of mourning here that really matters more than any other. And that is the loss of the relationship with God. And at some point in every human's life that has the ability to understand, they get to the place where they realize, I have lost the relationship with God. And I am truly alone. Now people, they'll try and fill that with all kinds of stuff. Sports, athletics, uh, partying, other people, 
Uh, sometimes people turn to self-medicating, all kinds of stuff to fill this hole that's really the loss of a relationship with God. And what God is saying is, blessed are they that mourn because they realize they are disconnected from me and they're mourning this loss. This is real. They're mourning this loss. This is what really matters. There are some losses that really matter. And we need to be careful that we never lose sight of, of the connection that matters the most. Because we'll have mourning in life, but we don't want to get to the place where we have lost connection with God and we no longer mourn that loss. That's what he said to the people at Laodicea in Revelation. You no longer mourn the loss of me. You're self-satisfied. Or you're attempting to fill that gap with other things. Come on. Yeah. When Peter denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed, I looked at it. Let's turn to Luke chapter 22. This is something about the loss that truly matters. Luke chapter 22. Part of the reason we're bringing these messages is so we can check our attitude and our motive, right? As we go through this, the Lord will help us. Okay. Luke 22, verse 60. It's at the trial of Jesus. And Jesus is out, excuse me, Peter's outside, Jesus is inside being tried by Pilate or, or, or the high priest and so forth. Let's back up. Verse 54, they took him, they brought him to the high priest's house, and Peter followed afar off. Peter was losing his mourning. He followed afar off. He was allowing fear to get in the way. And when they kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, they sat down together. Peter sat down among them, but a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, this man was also with him. And he denied him, saying, woman, I know him not. Peter denied Jesus. And after a little while, another saw him and said, thou art also of them. And Peter said, man, I am not space of an hour, another confidently affirmed, saying, of a truth this fellow was also with him, for he's a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while they spoke, the cock crew. Peter, the Lord turned. Now, this is the, this is the scripture. I'm imagining Jesus this whole time being questioned and tortured and beaten while Peter's having this side conversation of being denying, and the Lord turned. While he's being, while God is being beaten and tortured, and his mind is occupied by the pain and suffering, he's aware of what Peter is denying at the very moment that he is suffering. It's as if he's more concerned about Peter in that suffering than he is about himself. And as Peter denies him the third time, 
and then the rooster crows, Jesus turns and looks at Peter because he had foretold that Peter would do this. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, before, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He mourned the loss of his relationship with the Savior. And that's the reason why later Peter was comforted because he had mourned the loss of his relationship with the Savior. And the whole time that he was acting foolishly and carelessly with his own self-righteousness, God was watching him. And God was mourning the loss of his relationship with Peter. I believe that when we act carelessly and foolishly in sin and we go about our business like the prodigal and all of that, I believe God mourns the loss of his relationship with us. And when we're so mean to other people or when we just are, 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 are not careful with other people, I believe God is mourning that relationship. And he wants to know, at what point will you see that you are denying me and that you will begin to mourn the loss of that relationship. There are things that matter. At some point, we need to say goodbye to loss. We need to say, not forget, but we need, we need to say goodbye. There is a, a theory in the cycle of change, and organizations use this, but it also involves mourning and grief in that there is a theory that we begin with loss. That's what starts the cycle of, of loss, is a loss, a death. Yeah? And that leads us into mourning. And that mourning has lots of elements to it. It has physical pain, it has anger, it has grief, it has um, um, all sorts of stuff, denial. That's in the, the mourning period. But at some point, we are meant to move through mourning, not to forget the loss, but to move through it. And in organizations, what they say is, when people cannot let go of what has been lost, and that organizations will even use this metaphor, there needs to be a burial. I'm talking about organizational change now, not people. In an organization, when you are gonna move from uh, one, one, one sort of business model to a new one, and that involves change, it's almost like losing someone. You have to let them go, there has to be a burial. And until you do that, you won't move on. You won't move on. Now at this point again, people need to know the difference between letting go and forgetting. Forgetting is not the same as letting go. Letting go is honoring the loss. Letting go is honoring the loss. Respecting the loss. Respecting the trauma and the grief that the loss has produced. That's honoring the loss, not forgetting. When we have a loved one who dies, we never want to forget that loved one. We don't want other people to forget that loved one. 
but we honor their loss. At some point, this whole process has to finish because at some point, the organization or the person needs to get to a place called exploration. Exploration is a place in this cycle where you are ready now to allow yourself the possibility to move on. But we can't move on until we have let go. We need to say goodbye. Now when Jesus says in the fifth chapter of Matthew, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. What moves them from mourning to comfort is letting go. And the thing that we first need to let go of is sin. Sin prevents us from enjoying the relationship with God. And there is a time in a sinner's life when the sinner enjoys sin. There is pleasure in sin for a season. And so when a person is confronted by the fact that they are not connected to God, they have a decision to make. Shall I continue in sin and enjoy the pleasure of sin, or shall I let it go? Shall I bury the sin? When a person is baptized, they go down into the water, and baptism means burial. They go down into the water to demonstrate the Lord has forgiven me, and I have let go of the sin. So when we baptize somebody, we're not baptizing somebody that says, tomorrow I plan on going back and doing the very same thing that I did the day before. We're baptizing somebody who is saying, my desire is to remain connected to God and forsake the life of sin that brought me here. And I want to be buried with Christ. I'm letting go. There's a burial that's going on here. That, that has allowed me to move on. That has, that has allowed me to move into comfort. People need to say goodbye to sin. We need to say goodbye to sin. In John chapter 16, I'll just refer you here. Jesus says that when he dies, another will come. And the one who comes will be the comforter. That comforter is the Holy Spirit. That comforter is very similar to the comfort in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus dies and is resurrected so that the comforter can come and comfort those who mourn. Jesus doesn't walk the earth any longer, but the Holy Spirit does. And Christ is the one that gives us access to the comfort. The comfort and the comforter, they do the same thing. Jesus said, unless I go, the comforter will not come. We have to decide if we want to be truly free or if we just want to be permitted to keep doing the stuff that we used to do. Sometimes that's what religion might offer, is that Christ will allow you, to, he will forgive you, and 
you, you will be doing the things that you used to do, but nevertheless, God will forgive you. I, I wonder if there's not been a letting go. You know? I, I wonder if somebody has been taught a false promise that the comforter will come, he'll bring grace, because you inevitably, you, you are inclined toward the evil and you can't, you can't escape it, but the, the miracle is that somehow God yet accepts you and, and comforts you. But look, if, if I'm in the despondency of sin, if, if I'm in the Pilgrim's Progress, I'm in the city of destruction, and I've got a heavy burden on me, I want to get out. I don't want somebody to tell me, it's going to be okay. No, it's not okay. I have a heavy burden on me. For me, one of the first heavy burdens I realized is, this life is pointless. There's no meaning here. I go to church and I find no meaning. The man says, uh, uh, whatever the words are, Christ be with you. And, and we say, and with you also. And it's a form, and my, I go out of there, and there's no meaning in this. I'm not connected. And somebody says, well, that was sort of your experience, but not everybody. I, I think there's a universal experience that God has for everyone. I want to deliver you from sin and the meaninglessness of life. I want to give you meaning instead of vanity, right? Connect you. Are you mourning the condition that you're really in? Are we mourning just being religious or just being a sinner or just being alienated from God? Are we mourning that? The crisis of our life, are we mourning it? Are we mourning it? I'm talking about a real crisis that threatens the relationship with God. Are we mourning that? Why does somebody mourn something? Because it's something that really matters. Because then God will do business with the person that is mourning something that matters. And the business that he does is he provides comfort. That's a promise. That's a promise. Now, the enemy wants to say it's not a promise because in the morning you feel so empty, so lonely, so, so deprived of meaning. But, <laughs> amen. I forget who it was that in, the, in their Bible, mm, they, had a, they, they had a little acronym, two letters. Um, for TP. Who was that? Tried and proven. Tried and proven. One of the saints back in the day. So every promise in the Bible, and this is one of them, blessed are they that mourn so that they'll be comforted. They wrote down TP. Because in their life, it, they had tried it and God had proved it. So we need to remind the enemy that when he wants to suggest to us that these promises are not real, we have to put down TP. Tried and proven. God is no respecter of persons. If we mourn,
for the loss of the relationship with God. Now I'm speaking about someone who is a sinner and really wants to be saved, but it's also an attitude of the heart for the saint. This, this, this mourning is an attitude. Doesn't necessarily mean you're grieving loss. It's an attitude of humility and submission for the saint. That, and we're mourning the right thing, not the wrong thing. Brother, I, re I really want um, this out of my family relationship, or I really want, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm so discouraged by this thing out of, out of this personal relationship. And so I've made a decision. That's the first watch out. So now I've made a decision that I'm going to do X, Y, or Z because I'm tired of the mourning. There's a lot of self in that. There's a tremendous amount of self in that. That's not yet quite close enough to the mourning that he's talking about. That mourning is, I recognize I am poor in spirit. And my whole motive, my attitude, what everything is moving me through this is, is, is with poverty of spirit. And, and I'm, I'm mourning the loss of something, God, that you desire me to have. I'm mourning that loss. Then God can deal with you. Then God can have his way. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 30. And then he can provide the comfort that comes from mourning what matters. Matthew 11 and 30. See, people claim comfort when there is no comfort because they're mourning the wrong thing. Matthew 11 and 30. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy. We say goodbye to the kingdom of sin and God places in the kingdom of his righteousness. And that whole transaction happens through comfort, not condemnation. That whole, it happens through comfort. And I wrote down here, the kingdom of sin, when I say we need to say goodbye to that which matters, that, that mourning, the kingdom of sin, we need to say bye-bye. I don't even think we should say goodbye. Bye-bye. I don't even think we should say adios. That literally means to God. I don't want to say that to sin. I want to say, you go back to the infernal place that you came from. Bye. Get lost. Be gone. Be gone the thing, the thing that matters, that disconnected me from God. Be gone to that. That's the attitude when we say goodbye. And that gets us to the comfort that we seek. The comfort that we seek sometimes is, becomes elusive and unavailable because we truly are not mourning the loss of the right thing. We'll have to let you figure that one out. This is, this is 
complicated sometimes, especially in personal relationships? Is it creating a loss in my connection with God? And we say, no, brother, I love the Lord as much as I ever have. But then he also says, you cannot hate your brother and love me at the same time. And so how, how is this working? And you say, brother, I don't hate my brother. You know, all that whole conversation that goes back and forth like that. But if it's affecting the relationship with God, something in there really matters. And ultimately, if it's affecting the relationship with God, we need to see that and mourn that. Because until we do that, mourn that, we will not receive the comfort that he promises. Not really. We'll set up a whole fake program. This is what gets real. The comfort that we seek. We have to say goodbye to the life of sin so we can enter into the kingdom of God. Amen. That's why it's our first love, because we say goodbye to the life of sin. We say hello to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God becomes our first love. And with our first love comes our comfort. Mark it down. If you're, if you're losing comfort, you're losing your first love. There's other things that go with this. We talk about mourning the loss of things that really matter. People mourn the loss of vanity. Even after they're saved, they, 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 they enter into the kingdom of God, and then the enemy starts to pull on their, their memory and say, oh, it would, it would be so good if you could do this or do that or do the other. It's just vanity. If we, if, we begin to the, if we begin to mourn the loss of vanity, we're mourning the, the wrong thing. <clears throat> if we mourn what God really wants us to mourn, he will fill us. If we mourn anything else, the enemy will empty us. Saints of God, when they, they have this attitude of poverty of spirit, and of humility, and, and, and their first love is in the kingdom, they'll be filled. You will be a person that is filled. When, when, when people come to you and, and you, you're talking about serious stuff, there's an there's a overflowing that's going to come out of you, not an emptying. If we're mourning the loss of vanity and vain ideas, we will empty others we will ultimately be a taker and not a giver. The giver is the one who has mourned the loss of the kingdom of God. God has comforted them and placed them in the kingdom. The attitude of that stays with them in this humility, right? And God fills, because when God comforts, he fills. And he doesn't just fill just enough. He keeps filling so it overflows. And when somebody is around you, they'll partake of your overflowing. Otherwise, you will empty them because you lack. Now, I realize when times get tough and we're 
hurting and all of that, we don't have much to spare. I get that. So this isn't meant to condemn somebody. But that's the general idea. God fills, Satan empties. God comforts, Satan takes. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall see the kingdom of heaven. Let's stand.